0: Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. We're glad that you can be here. Momentous things have happened this week. Those that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Isn't that right, Lot?
1: That's right. My little recording room, I have added a light fitting to it so that my face can even be seen on the video feed as we record this conversation.
2: Yeah, I, thought right. ju- I thought you were just talking about the fact that Daylight Savings is finished and we're, uh, um, <laughs> we've got a bit more light in the morning.
0: That <laughs> uh, That too. Uh, my name's Cameron, glad to have you with us.
2: And Ken, likewise. And Luke, likewise. And I'm Lachlan.
0: Okay, we're going to jump straight into a discussion of the flood, which is a, um, an important story in the sort of gradual unfolding of, of God's interaction with humanity, particularly in the context of covenants. I'm not going to give it too much introduction. This is this is a well-known story. It's a much loved story. Uh, my wife teaches at a at a school in Deloraine, um, that is the local Catholic primary school there, and the children very much enjoy playing the Noah's Ark game, where they where they they walk onto the ark in pairs, impersonating an animal, and she has to guess what animal it is. Then she has to remember what order all the animals went onto the ark in, and and they try and make it very complicated for her, and then she has to call them off the ark in the same order. So, uh, much loved children's story, v- very complicated story, and not all of the details make it into our into our children's retellings. I'm not sure uh, which section we should read of this. Perhaps we we might perhaps we might talk a little bit about the structure of the story. I mean, the the basic premise that things going wrong and God sends a flood, and then he sends a rainbow, and we usually stop the story there, but the Genesis doesn't stop the story there. The The narrative is fairly well established. Uh, we'll read lots of passages, uh, but before we do, I, I want to start with a discussion of a structural element of the story that isn't really obvious to Western modern eyes as you uh, just read through the text. And uh, reading, reading it through in order doesn't necessarily help you see this either so I'm going to suggest we recap the events of the flood in the following order I'm holding in front of me a book that I referred to in a previous episode um, called Back to the Present by Lawrence Turner and it's a discussion of the opening chapters of the Bible and if I put my marker in the right place I will be able to find what I'm looking for so here's the story of the flood and we're going to, we're going to tell it uh, we're going to turn the story inside out or outside in. We're going to start from the two edges of the story and work our way toward the middle, perhaps. Uh, what is being told in in Genesis 5? We won't read the verse, but uh, what's in Genesis 5.32 and in Genesis 9.28?
1: Genesis 5 has a, has a, a bunch of, of people's um, lifespans because it's a genealogy chapter, yeah. and it finishes with Noah. Noah was 500 years old, and he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth.
0: But but Noah's genealogy doesn't conclude there because it doesn't say when he died. That's picked up in Genesis nine. So the story of the flood is actually an insert into Noah's genealogy. If you look at the genealogies, there's a pattern where it says, you know, how old they were when they had their first son, how old they were when they, they died. All the details are measured, in, listed in the same order, and with Noah, half the details become before the flood, and half of them come after the flood. Let's have a look. Uh, Genesis 6, the opening verses of Genesis 6, and compare it with Genesis 9, 20
3: to 27? So I have 9,
0: 20 to 27. All right, hold, hold that, Luke. Locke, do you have the opening verses of chapter 6 as a broad sum, a summary? What what the first, say, six or seven verses of chapter 6?
1: Well, this is the motivation behind the flood story, and essentially... Um, Things in God's creation are not going so well. The, uh, the, he says, God actually says that he's, he's a bit frustrated that people are living so long. And, um, he sees the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And there's a bizarre, no, Noah, Noah is accepted, is a strong exception from this. Um, but there is also a bizarre element in the opening of this of this story about the giants and the Nephilim and the sons of God seeing that the daughters of men were beautiful and taking them as wives. And that's a puzzling part in my opinion.
0: let's uh, let's come back to that lock, but there's there is a judgment on sin on sinners, mm. but a, a blessing bestowed or grace bestowed on Noah. Um, and Luke in genesis nine twenty to twenty seven.
3: This is the equally uh, puzzling, in a way, uh, story of Noah um, getting drunk and Ham apparently doing something bad, though it's not clear what it was that was so bad. Maybe he went and told his brothers about it so that they could all laugh at their father. Um, And then Noah curses his son, Canaan, son of Ham, who didn't actually do anything, um, and blesses um, Shem and Japheth, who covered him with a garment
0: there's judgment passed on on sinners and blessing passed on on at least those trying to be upright yes Uh, which is is a time to your verses lot question Mm. the The part of it but yes well i see the pattern well well luke noah says noah says when he found out what his son had done to him and it doesn't say what his son did to him but there's a suggestion that something fairly bad has happened. And it's the same with the start of the chapter, incidentally, with the sons of God and the daughters of Eve. There's something uh, indefensible happening mm. of a sexual nature that's not clearly articulated. But there's certainly a tie in between the start and the end of the story. With the Genesis chapter 9, there's an interesting link to Genesis 3 because um, Genesis 3 has a fruit of the tree and and Noah has the vines of the vineyard. In Genesis three, they discovered they were naked, mm-hmm. and Noah lies naked. In, in Genesis three, there's curses given by the offending party, which is got offended party, which is God, and the same happens in Genesis nine. And then um, in Genesis three, God provides clothes, and in Genesis nine, Shem and Japheth provide clothes for Noah. So the way the story unfolds is there's an interesting link there. But the, at the start of the account, or at least. The start and the end of the account, we we find really similar themes. Mm. With Indeed, the there's an even there's an
2: even, there are more parallels with the earlier Genesis stories, not just Genesis three. When you go back even to the start of, of Genesis chapter nine, you see God bless and his sons and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth." Well, that's a previous uh yeah. requirement that God or, or command that God gave uh, earlier. If so, you
0: look. That's a, that's a great verse, Ken. If That's the start of chapter 9? Mm. Yes. That's God's, that's God's fourth divine address, and it's, it's a covenant of blessing and peace. If you look at the start of the account, God's first divine address is a resolution to destroy. So there's, there's a, a contrast b- brought out there. Uh, um,
2: but, but it's a bizarre resolution to destroy. My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. Of course they're flesh. That's how he made them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, why is it that that suddenly now becomes and such a difficult what? <clears throat> uh, Yes. What, what thing to deal it? with for God?
0: Well, Ken, why is it? Why is it that, and this is my question that I only thought of recently that we should have talked about in previous episodes. Why is it that in the opening chapters of Genesis, man is made specifically, the thing that sets mankind apart from the animals is that mankind bears the image of God. And yet they are expelled from the garden for, precisely for, becoming like us, knowing good and evil, becoming like God. And, and, m- and more
3: than that, they're expelled from the garden specifically so that they would not have access to the Tree of Life, which implies they... that, that, that their immortality had everything to do with access to the Tree of Life and nothing to do yeah. with whether or not they knew
2: good and evil. And now they're already mortal, uh, so they don't have access to the Tree of Life here, he won't abide in mortals but- forever for their flesh. Uh, not only are you not go- not only are you now mortal, but I'm going to limit it to 120 years. Yeah, but see, this
1: is even weirder when you- and Cam, this is derailing you. I'm sorry, but uh, Luke pointed out to me in a recent <laughs> conversation about this that that actually this judgment of God takes a long time to come into effect after the Thousands story of the of flood. Years. There is, there is a description then, uh, the genealogy, as you pointed out, Cam, continues. And the descendants of Noah live substantially longer than 120 years for a significant number of generations. It, it takes quite a long time for this particular judgment of God.
0: God's very good at changing his mind. That's That obviously is, is one of the points of the passage. Because God says, when you eat the tree dying, you shall die. That day. It shall be a calamitous, and instant death, and then God God doesn't do that, and then God God appears to have changed his mind at the start of Genesis six with the flood because he's sorry that he made mankind, mm. and he's going to he's going to destroy and right, wipe the world clean, but he changes his mind again in Genesis chapter nine where he makes a covenant with Noah, and the covenant acknowledges the fact that there will be human evil, yes, mm. yes, and just and despite this he will not, but I. I, I before we leave this point, I'm going to persevere with the structure of the, yes, of the account. Go back to the structure. It starts, it starts with a, a judgment on sinners' grace to Noah and ends with judgment on Canaan blessing to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, the story then moves in Genesis 6. The next point is so, the second point in the story is Genes- Noah and his three sons. The second and last point is a statement about Noah and his three sons. The third point in the story is. Uh, is that there is uh, violence in God's creation uh, and God resolves to destroy. As we've just looked at the end of the story, there's a similar resolution on God's part, but it's to, to preserve order rather than to destroy. So there's a a contrast here instead of a, a similarity. Uh, God, the second divine address in the start of chapter 7 is to enter the ark, and the third divine address in chapter 8 is to leave the ark. Um, we have the beginning of the flood and... The drying of the earth and the rising of the floodwaters and the receding of the floodwaters. So what what we see is the account, the events of the first half are mirrored in their telling in the second half in so reverse what's, order. What's in the middle? What's in the middle is is Genesis eight verse one. The first part of Genesis eight verse one is is the pinnacle. Is if you're a Hebrew reader, this this uh, type of storytelling is is an extended chiasm, which has a fancy name. Um, which I should be able to look up in my book and then I'll sound even more intelligent than I normally do by by pilfering other people's work and, and reading their books. Uh, One uh, of the
2: advantages of a good memory, Cam. <laughs> a polystrophy.
0: It's a polystrophy, uh, which is just an extended chiasm, which is just a story where what happens in the first half of the story, you know, A, B, C, D, E happens and then E, D, C, B, A happens at the end mm. of the story. And, and it identifies the focal point of the story, which is the start of Genesis 8, which reads,
1: But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water to subside.
0: So, so I wanted to point that out at the start, that whatever you know, curly issues we, we find in this story, and there's heaps, the focal point of the story, as understood by someone familiar with the narrative form, is that this is a story about God saving and remembering, not simply a story about God destroying? Mm. So I, I thought that that would be where our discussion should start. We've 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 already touched on some of the sort of juicy bits. Um, uh, I thought one of the, y-
2: the points that you made, or, I'm not sure who it was now, uh, made earlier was that yeah, you know, God keeps changing his mind. Um, we're pretty fortunate that he does. Uh, that he remembers um, and that he doesn't act every time on his initial inclination to destroy.
1: Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that God's God's decision to destroy here is actually pretty far reaching. It does it does strike me as a little bit of an overreaction because at the start of Genesis six, the problem that is outlined is is maybe related to this this vaguely alluded to potentially slightly sexual misdemeanor type of thing with this with these sons of God taking the beautiful daughters of men um, but the main problem is the the wickedness this this intent in the man's heart to do evil continually and violence
0: and, 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 and that's a contrast locked to Genesis 1 <coughs> where everything was good everything that God saw was good. Whereas, whereas here, in this account, everything that he sees is evil. Well, that's... all. All in, It's entirely evil.
1: Yeah, but this is the question. It is humanity which is described as being evil and violent. And yet, in verse 7, God says, I'll blot out man, whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am well, sorry well, that I have made them.
3: It's more than that. If... if- as Cam very very astutely pointed out, the the implied evil and sin in the first in verses two and four um, is not committed by man. It's committed by these nephilim creatures, which is not to say there wasn't other sin and evil, etc. 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 But the one that's actually referred to in the text was God's sons, the nephilim, taking women that they wanted as wives. That is to say, right. mm. Um Verse <laughs> five have, does yeah, describe
1: a, a wickedness attributed to men. But yeah, yes. the whole issue of the Nephilim is one that I don't think we have time to, disc- to, to explore no, really here. I've, it is puzzling.
0: I've, I've got an excerpt in front of... Lawrence Turner proposes a couple of uh, solutions that... They're not his solutions, solutions that people have found in the past to, to that passage... And observes that none of them are very convincing. Hmm. Uh, so, so perhaps we can just leave that as a mystery. Uh, this comment, though, that God is going to destroy all the animals as well as mankind, doesn't happen. because yeah. God tells Noah to build an ark. The whole point of the ark is is as a instrument for preserving the things that God said He was going to destroy.
3: I mean, He's to destroy all the other animals.
1: Yeah, it's it's notable in Genesis one the the animals in the water, the animals in the sea, were specifically described as an extra category, and they are omitted because it seems obviously difficult to wipe them out by sending flood waters.
0: Yeah, flood, but look, I think I think what you were referring to was the injustice of God meeting out punishment on the animal kingdom because of sin in in the human realm. Yeah, that's that's a question that's worth discussing. From the point of view of the way the narrative has unfolded thus far, the creatures were under man's dominion. And, and the Israelites didn't seem at odd, at all odd, they didn't seem to question that, that a whole nation should be punished if its king was leading it in the wrong direction. Mm. That, that seems to happen. So in other words, if you're part of this collectivist sort of culture, if the person at the top is going wrong, then the whole group is subject to judgment. Punishment. Right. So it's
2: reverse ministerial responsibility.
0: Yeah, it's because we're responsible. Basically, they're put under our care. So when we stuff up, of course, it meets out. Yeah. You know, Okay, th- th- this brings punishment to the animals as well because they were put under our care. And
1: Right. So I need to be a little cautious about bringing a modern sense of individualism uh, to the to the collective of species here at the start of Genesis yeah. 6. Yeah. Well, I no, it. I mean,
3: but... It- I mean, you still can't just discount the modern sense of individual responsibility and or innocence. Um, Just because, you know, it might not have been in the culture of the authors. We still believe that to be true. We, as a society, do not punish the collective for the actions of one individual. Mm. We punish, we only punish the guilty. That is one of the, correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, but that's one of the fundamental concepts of our justice system
2: well in fact what we do though is we punish the individual for the uh, sins of the collective
0: uh just while we're discussing this um that some of the curly ethics what's worth pointing out is that the story of the flood is a story about ethics about right and wrong and morality and behavior and and choices and we might find some of the ethics in it a bit troubling, but at, at least it is phrased in those terms. The Mesopotamian um, epic of the Flood um, has, has uh, very little to say about morality. The reason why the gods send the Flood in that epic is because humans are making too much noise. And the god Enlil is finding it hard to sleep, and so he's going to send a Flood. And the the story, as told in the Mesopotamian account, is is a judgment on the gods, fickleness. Uh, As in, the gods are not painted in a favorable light. Mm. Mm. And that's in huge contrast with the story in Genesis. Mm. Mm.
3: Although, interestingly, the fickleness of God is not so much in contrast. Although, as Ken pointed out, in the Noah story, it's a good thing that he changes his mind. About killing everything,
0: no. But God's God's not fickle. There's there's a point here, um, and I'm going to look clever again by stealing someone else's ideas. Um, God, God's not um, disinterested. He's also not uninterested. But he's not he's not disinterested in this. He he has a stake in this play. He he's not um, fickle in the sense of being sort of impersonal and toying with other people. Uh, what it says is. Uh, God saw that the inclination of the... I'm reading from Lawrence Turner's book. God saw that the inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil at all time. And then a few verses later, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So one of the central premises, and this this is a, if you like, a new idea, because Genesis is talking about the beginning of all things. This is like just sort of coming into focus. The idea is that human in the evil heart produces pain in God's heart. Mm. So God, God's n- not fickle in the sense that He is. He's acting out of a state of being wounded. He's hurt. He's genuinely mm. hurt.
1: And um, and that's connected. So back, So in verse um, three of Genesis six, uh, this this. God deciding he's going to limit the lifespan of humans. It says, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he's also flesh. Spirit and breath, are same sort of word. And what happened back in, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 was that God created man and breathed his spirit into him. So now there's mm-hmm. this connection. Again, the, the heart of God and the heart of man and the spirit of God and the breath of man, they're being... There's a lot in the start of this that is tying it's those two together. Word. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
3: And interesting, Lachlan, and a little bit of a postscript on this thing about lifespans. I looked up after our conversation previously, um, the end of Abraham's life. He lived to 175 years and is described as, at, the, at that point, giving up his spirit. Hmm. Mm. I think it is. And returning
0: mm, to his ancestors, The spirit yeah. spirit gets another look. I think the Hebrew word is rua ruah. Uh, I'm, not, I'm going to be saying that entirely incorrectly uh, but when God sends His spirit over the waters that's the same phrase that's used in in Genesis 1 verse 2 where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters except in the flood account we usually interpret the word God sent a wind over the waters to dry it up mm. but but the Hebrew phrase is the same as God sending his spirit. Which happens in in Genesis one, uh, of course. Uh, can you point it out that in the creation account and in the flood account, there is a um, there is a blessing to to uh, multiply well, and fill the earth.
2: Well, it's a command. Uh,
0: really, it's a it's a command. In Genesis, in the creation account, it says the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground. In Genesis two, and um, there's a uh, two Hebrew words used in sequence which are used in the verse, never again will I curse the ground because of man, in the flood account. Uh, and then uh, the most notable one is, uh, there's a few other similarities, but then the conclusion between the rainbow and the Sabbath. Mm. There are only three things in the Old Testament that are given as the sign of a covenant. One of them is circumcision, which doesn't feature in, in, the, in the comparison that we're looking at today. The, the one the other is the rainbow and the other is the sabbath they're the only things in the old testament identified as being the sign of a covenant hmm. so uh,
2: is that right um I, I thought
0: i hope it's right I, it's in the book that's in front of me
2: well Ken. i thought that <laughs> when i thought that when god made the covenant with abraham he there was some animals that were split in half and he walked through the animals okay. so
0: as an ongoing sign of a covenant Okay. Circumcision is not exactly
3: ongoing. Well,
0: perpetual through the Israelites.
3: Yeah. <laughs> it well, is. what I'm, i, I yeah, you're you're valiant <laughs> in your defence, Cam, of this
1: of this claim. It's admirable. I, <laughs> I I agree. I believe you, Cam. I agree with you for what it's worth.
0: Yeah, yeah. My my point is that that the story of the flood is is told in a way to exaggerate. Uh, Similarities. It's told as a recreation. Yeah, it's, it a, it's a recreation
2: that you can see that.
0: Mm. Yeah, and so so God's resolution to destroy is is not in fact. I know that's what he says, but that, that's not in fact his resolution. His, his resolution is is to make a a new start, and the new start doesn't fix things. Um, in the sense that we have that episode in Genesis 9 where there's still sin, still of a similar nature. Mm. Um, it's described in similar terms. But but even if you just said, even though it didn't work, what this, what this account identifies is that God's preference is not to mm. make a clean sweep. His preference is to, as far as possible, recreate what's there. And, and you see that then in terms of the cross and his interventions in our own lives, Identifying that as a one of God's priorities is a really valuable addition well, to, so, to the unfolding narrative. I'm
3: thinking about why God makes the covenants. And I think in, in every instance, it's to it seems, it's to moderate, to put some boundaries on his own behavior, is the primary reason yes. why he does it. And I, That's would have thought. Like, yeah, I think it is because what we see in in these early chapters of Genesis is a God who does, you know, fickle is maybe has too too many negative connotations to be really fair here. But he is changeable. He he changes his mind about stuff, and then he goes on. And, that it's not good that I keep changing my mind about stuff. I'm going to set myself some rules, and here are the rules. And, I'm not going to destroy Luke, the earth again.
0: And Luke, even if the God of the Israelites was not fickle, it is certainly the case that the gods they would have been familiar with from other nations were.
3: Well, and I think here's what what the, the distinction is, Cam, that I think you'll like, is that God is constantly changing his mind in Genesis, specifically because he cares about humans because mm. what is happening causes him pain, as opposed to, say, the Mesopotamian gods or gods in other stories, yeah. where they change their minds because they don't care and it doesn't matter to them. So they're whatever. So it's 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 the same changeability, but for entirely different reasons. Mm. But, but God actually works to... He actually takes action and makes decisions to make himself more constant.
0: And this is... Played out elsewhere in the Bible, you know. There's those uh, Psalms. Our first series was on the Psalms. There's those Psalms that are just verses upon verse of of the psalmist thanking God for Your law, how wonderful it is, how beautiful, how perfect it is. And we we don't turn to those Psalms so often. I think I think one reason why it would speak very strongly to the ancient Hebrews is is you know other nations had had indifferent gods who changed their mind. And you had to sacrifice to them. You had to sacrifice your kids to them. You like you just had to go bend yourself over backwards and spend everything you had. You never knew what the gods would require next. Whereas the Israelites' God had made it really clear, had had established terms of reference, mm. very clearly. And that's that's a fantastic thing. That's just that, that is a that is a reason to praise Him.
3: Mm.
0: And and yeah. your comment, Luke, that the the covenant is a restriction on God is is true of of all the covenants. Um, when we talk about the Noah Hyde Covenant, I've I read something in a different book, so now I'm going to look twice as clever now. It said I won't look twice as clever now I, now I sound very foolish. I won't I won't look clever to our listeners because they're listening. They're not looking. <laughs> um, so I'm sounding less clever. I'm, I'm going to stop talking. Um, and maybe the less I say, the more clever I'll sound. Uh, but a separate book now. Um, by a Jewish rabbi that I've referred to previously, not in God's name. He refers to the Noahide covenant, and he was referring to all sorts of things in this book. that I had no recollection of being in the Noahide covenant at all. I thought the Noahide covenant was the rainbow, but but the, it's only the sign of the covenant. Right. What, well, is the covenant? Well,
1: I wanted to make a point here, Cam, that the um, uh, talking about the covenant in connection to the story of the flood automatically makes me think of God's. Um, speech after the dry land has reappeared. But I'm startled to note that there is indeed a second covenant in this story in Genesis six, verse 18, where God has just given, God has just given his instructions. Yeah. It's the first covenant in the story. God has just given his instructions to Noah about how big to build the ark. He's described what he's going to do with it. In verse 17, I will, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. There again, the breath, the spirit. And then in verse 18, Mm. but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing and of all flesh, you shall bring two and you will be kept alive. And I've, I've, I've skipped over a bit there. So the word covenant is explicitly used in verse 18 of Genesis 6. And I had never noticed that.
0: And and this covenant is quite notable itself, Lock, because it, it itemises. Incidentally, this idea of Noah preaching and inviting people onto the ark is not in the account anywhere. Mm. Um, right, this children's
3: so story bit that we have. That it is alluded Noah to. Seem, in, yeah, in the book on. of
0: Hebrews, is it Hebrews, Lock? Noah is referred to in the in the is it in the faith chapter. He's referred to as a preacher.
1: I think so. Certainly in the New Testament, there is a mention of Noah preaching, but in Genesis, there is not. And in this first covenant in the story, there is a, I think you were just about to say this, Cam, there is an explicit itemization of who is included in this covenant of Ooh. rescue from the flood. And it, there is no room. No wonder Noah didn't preach. He had been given very clear instructions about who was going to be in the ark. But
0: no, but, but even that list is notable because who was righteous?
1: Yeah, Noah. Noah was righteous he he, blameless Noah alone
0: was righteous yeah the reason why the translations say Noah alone is because in the Hebrew text it is singular that's that's not something that the translation has been added in it is inferred in the text that Noah alone was righteous but this offer of redemption is extended to his family Mm.
3: I also just a very quick side note of no significance in the bit just after what you were reading from, Wachlan, 21, which finishes God's command and covenant to know it, it says, take with you some of all food that is eaten, which I just find a remarkable instruction. <laughs> just some of all food yes, and
0: take that as well.
1: Yep. Yep. Gather it to yourself and it shall be for food for you and for them.
0: Mm. Yeah. All food. Of course, some of, some of the food that was eaten was animals. Because mm. he takes more of the clean animals than the unclean. Animals.
1: And there's no mention given here as to what is done with the carnivorous animals that are rescued on the
3: Ark. There's no mention of a lot of the practicalities, which I th- I think is
0: is because that is beside the point.
1: Obviously. Yes, it's very very obviously beside the point from the context of of the story being told.
0: Well the story this is not a story about about the flood. How to make it flow about zoo. Yeah. It's a story about God. Mm like really obvious, even, it's not even a story about Noah because if you look, um, Noah says nothing in the first half of the account at all. Uh, does he even say anything in, in, yes, Noah, the only thing Noah yeah. says is at the end when he curses his son, um, yeah. Canaan. Um, he doesn't actually you know, speak in, in... In the start, in the start in the of the chapter, story. God says, do X, Y, Z, and then all it says is, and then Noah did it. Mm. And then God yeah. says another speech and then it says... So, so the story is not a story about Noah and the flood. It's a story about God and the flood. Mm and and it's very much god is the central character and and we're trying to establish on what terms god will interact with a people that are that are fallen that's a loaded term anyone who is wants to be less sure of what fallen means should listen to our previous episodes but but Fair. on what terms will god on what terms will god interact with people seems to be the question mm. and and We've learned a couple of things. We've learned that God is upset, really hurt by human evil. This moves him to action. But the God who judges is the same God who is gracious. He's gracious to Noah's wife and and Noah's kids. If his if his purpose was just to continue the human race, he only had to extend his grace to Noah's wife.
3: Well, he actually didn't even have to extend his grace to anybody. He could have just started again. I mean, he made well, them the exactly. first time around.
0: So, and and. And what we find is, the, the flood is is a one-off event. The permanent state of affairs, the, the conclusion we, that we're getting to. The question is, how is God going to relate to people who are who are fallen? And the the permanent, everlasting covenant, His final decision on the matter, as it were, from the point of view of this narrative, comes in Genesis nine. Mm. So the rainbow is the sign of the covenant. But what is the covenant of which it is a sign? What's in the covenant? What's in the Noahide Covenant?
1: Yeah, well, the so with the covenant is not established with with Noah alone. The covenant is established with Noah and with his descendants after him, and with every living creature, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth, all that comes out of the ark, even the beasts, every beast of the earth. So the covenant, whatever it is, Cam is is. Mm. Addressed to a very now Ken, you're going to have to help me here with the the formal wording of this. But the recipients or the the um, addressee of this covenant is is rather universal.
2: Well, it's probably as simple as a covenantee,
1: right? Covenantee. So I think I'm a covenantee of this
2: covenant. Yes, yes you are. You're, the, Noah his heirs, successors, and assigns.
0: One. <laughs> One of the things is, a, one of the covenant includes is a statement of provision. God says, it's really interesting here. God says, I gave you before I gave you the plants for food. I'm now going to give you everything for food. But you mustn't eat any meat that has its lifeblood in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I'll demand an accounting from every animal. So so even though, even though animals are now subject to food, the standard of stewardship you hold over the natural order is to be a very high one. And there should be no needless spilling of blood. Um, there's something very serious. I'll expect an accounting from you uh, for every spilling of blood. Um, and f- from each man to it specifically says the animals. I'll expect an accounting for human blood and for human blood and, a- and animal blood. Um, I'll demand an accounting for the life of every fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God... Has God made man? So uh, there will be shedding of blood. There's going to, be in other words, God's saying there's going to be ongoing evil. But I, 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 I will hold you to account, and I expect you to hold each other to account. What what principles of justice are established in in chapter nine, verse six?
3: Yeah, I, I think it's a really, really good point, Cam. Um, I talked about how the covenants of they're putting limits on God's behavior. But also, mm. I think the thing you said about this story is about God's what God chooses to do in an ongoing fashion with regard to human evil. And this is, I think, mm. the first time that we see actual rules, laws yeah. about human interaction. God has given commands before as don't eat the fruit from this tree. This is the first time laws have been laid down in response to humans committing evil against each other and against animals, and animals. Hmm. Um, so this is this is now God's part of God's ongoing response to human evil. This new concept.
0: Part of His ongoing response is to charge us with developing a system of appropriate and proportionate justice.
1: So. Are you saying... Whoever
0: sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed.
1: Are you saying that in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world and all that's in it, but in Genesis 9, God created lawyers?
0: Yes.
3: And note that it doesn't say, and it was good.
2: <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> right, I'm, I'm, go- I'm, go- I'm going home. I'm, I'm going home. I'm so sorry, Ken. It does, <laughs> Ken, Ken, it, was it doesn't say it was right bad. <laughs> it
0: doesn't... Sure.
3: It doesn't say it was bad.
2: True, thank you. Yeah, in fact, we can just choose whether it's going to be good or bad.
3: In fact, in all seriousness, it says it was very important. Setting up this system of human administered justice was a better response to human evil than destroying everything. Yeah, that's what that's, that's, that's the what inference. Genesis says. This is a better way to do it,
0: and and it's. It's human-administered, but but it's there's God's oversight. Is there. He expects a rec- He will take a reckoning, and and God is obviously going to be involved in His creation in an ongoing way. But but this verse suggests He wants h- human participation in, in in finding just solutions to problems. And I know I know the eye for the eye, tooth for the tooth thing seems um, extreme. Uh, as a statement of restraint. I oh, know that's not the words used in this passage, but um, it, it's used in Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the Bible. Um, and in this passage, it does say, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Um, it, what's suggested there is a proportionate and appropriate response. And the eye for the eye and the tooth for the tooth is a statement of restraint. Do no more.
3: Mm. Um,
0: and, and what's suggested here seems to be that the consequence ought to be appropriate
2: Well, that's a principle of sentencing, Um, uh, and it's the principle of proportionality. Um, I wonder whether we might, whether there's something that comes from this. Uh, Verse 3 of chapter 6 starts with, My spirit shall not abide in in mortals forever, for they are flesh. And then one comes over to verse 12, And God saw the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And then there are other occasions where we see this reference to all flesh. So we go over to uh, uh, verse
3: it's chapter 9. In, in 9, 6,
2: uh, f- 15. Uh, 15. I remember I yeah. covered This is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Um, uh, and never again shall a flood to destroy all flesh. And there's other references to all flesh um, what is this all flesh and where does it fit in is there anything is there anything to be made of that that hasn't already been said
1: well so there is one there is one really obvious thing Ken which is um, again the, the universality of it so you know in the Christian era most Christian well in the New Testament in the Christian era the question about the sign of circumcision came up Over and over again, is that an important sign? The question seems to sort of be: Does, how does the Abrahamic covenant work in the post-cross era? That's that's what the Book of Acts and and large portions of the New Testament seems to be exploring. Do
0: you notice, Locke? Do you notice, Locke, that what they come up with is consistent with the Noahide covenant? The one thing they keep is the spilling of blood, which is in the covenant with Noah, which is a universal covenant with all humankind. And the Abrahamic covenant is not a covenant with all humankind.
1: That is really interesting. I've often, I've often posed the question, why the three conditions that are imposed in Acts in the Jerusalem Council as a kind of solution to this question of circumcision?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They, seem, they seem good. I don't have a problem with them, but they do seem a little arbitrary as the central three things.
2: And, and, um, and really quite incomplete.
1: And and note what they were. There was I don't I probably can't list them all off, but there was refraining from sexual immorality, in 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 some vague way. Sexual immorality seems to be connected with the story of the flood. There was yeah. there was refraining from there, being careful about the consumption of flesh, um, expressed through the sacrificial to idols and and the blood. But that's exactly out of the creation out of the the flood narrative here. Aha! Mm. So so that's an interesting thought there. I'd I'd not connected those together
0: let me read you this excerpt from this book by rabbi Sachs, not in god's name and i'm going to read you a bunch of excerpts and piece them together um genesis describes two covenants the first with noah and all humankind and the second with abraham and, and his children who are not all humankind just one particular people within it the covenant with the covenant with noah uses the word elohim throughout which means is a universal term describing the way people relate to god but the covenant with Abraham uses the word Hashem, uh, which is a different term to describe the interaction. I, I, I would need to go earlier in the book to, to more clearly delineate the meaning, meaning of those few terms. Um, the Noahide covenant expresses the unity of God and the shared dignity and responsibility of humankind. The Abrahamic covenant expresses the particularity of, of the Israelites' relationship with God which has to do with their specific identity, history, language, and literature. The Noahide Covenant is the Bible's universal code, the basic infrastructure of a just social order. The Noahide Laws, as understood by Judaism's sages, set out the broad parameters of a decent society, respect for God, human life, the family, property, animal welfare, and the rule of law. These principles are general, not specific. They're thin, not thick. They apply to everyone in virtue of the fact that they are in the image of God, therefore worthy of, the dig- worthy of dignity and respect. They are universal rules of what today we would call re- responsibilities and rights. Um, but they re- uh, apply to what we have in common, not what makes us different. And he's writing from a Jewish perspective. So the Bible moves on from the universal to the particular, the narrative of Abraham and Sarah and the children of Israel. There is no implication that Abraham's or the Israelites is the only story. To the contrary, as Amos 9.7 says, Are you not Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from Egypt, the Philistines from Kafta, and the Aramaeans from Kerr? God is active in the history of other nations as well. He sends prophet Jonah to Israel's enemy, to Assyria, to persuade them to repent and be saved from catastrophe. And he goes through and gives a whole bunch of other references that suggest the Abrahamic covenant is an account of God's interaction with humanity. But it's it's not universal. It's a particular interaction with a particular people. There is no... There there any intimation in the Bible that Abraham's family have a monopoly on virtue. Um, He lists a bunch of heroes. Rahab, uh, Jael, who nails the tempeg through Sisera's head, Uriah the Hittite, uh, Job, uh, are all heroes whose morality is contrasted with with other people more closely tied with God's um, people. And uh, Moses repeatedly tells the Israelites that they haven't been chosen because they're particular virtuous. Um, and he, he makes this point. A chosen people is the opposite of a master race. The Israelites were not a people given an exclusive access to God. Uh, they were just given a particular task to do. Uh, and let me find this. He, and he, he's writing in the context of this whole book is about religious violence, people who go and do violent things in the name of God. Mm. And he said... He said, um, Genesis 1 is about the self, that we are made in the image of God. Genesis 9, very explicitly, is about the human other. The one who is not in my image is also made in the image of God. So the other person who is killed, you cannot kill someone because if you kill them, you must remember they are made in the image of God, is what it says in Genesis 9. So uh, they are in God's image. Um, the people we don't like, the people not like us, the people not belonging to our group, the fact that the Noahide covenant is listed first and the terms of that covenant, that God, everyone is made in the image of God and everyone is deserving of dignity and respect is, is, precedes the story of, of the Abrahamic covenant, which is which is the identity statement for that particular group, basically meant that the Israelites never could wage a religious war imposing their God on other people. And they didn't, not that I know of, they didn't sort of go on Crusades forcing their God on other people as other neighbouring countries did. Hmm. I
2: wonder what that has they, to say. They couldn't
0: do that. They couldn't do it because the other nations, were the Noahide Covenant precedes...
3: I know what it, you're it, about it, to say, Ken. It's the... Yes, what's, what is
0: it in shameful. a... shameful. Yeah. um, The Noahide Covenant precedes the Abrahamic Covenant. It is the more fundamental covenant. Yes, um, and it applies and he, to he, he,
3: Christians he, he, as well. Well,
2: yeah. I mean, to make it explicit, uh, I wonder what that sort of approach might have to say about our attempts to legislate our morality on broader society.
0: Yeah. Mm. And as has <clears> been seen, I think, Luke, you may have been referring to the Crusades.
3: Yeah, well, you, you actually used the word crusade. <laughs> but yes, the that's Spanish what Inquisition. I was. Yeah. Um, well, many, many such things. I mean, at one point a a nominally Christian Roman emperor marched his army through a river and said you're all baptised now. I'm not sure that they were genuine converts.
0: <laughs> yeah. They, they, look, they... <laughs> Uh, they weren't all baptized. Their sword arm was kept above the water, right? They so they could still kill people fart. without, uh,
3: without <laughs> with, moral that, with that hand. Yes, with that hand. Um, but, but hey, coming coming back to something, we talk Lachlan. You were talking about the collective versus the individual and all the rest of it. But we actually hmm. do see some sign of the concept of individual in Genesis chapter nine, verse six. And this is very much connected to what you were just now reading, Cam. We, there's two fundamental principles of justice in that one. Verse, which is proportionate punishment mm. and only punish the guilty,
1: yeah, individual responsibility
3: individual responsibility
1: that's that's really mm. fascinating
3: <clears throat> and and it does specifically say
2: whoever sheds the blood of a human mm. by mm, a yeah. human shall that person's blood be shed, so there is that yeah individualism referred to there,
1: yeah. Cam, the those excerpts that you just read are really, really good. That's that's top quality stuff. I think it's very fascinating to reflect that it's coming not from a Christian perspective but from a contemporary Jewish Second perspective. Time. Um I'm intrigued by it. And that th- we, we may need to come back and look at it next week because this week's Sabbath school lesson was called All Future Generations, and we've we've absolutely resonated with that theme of universality but next week's lesson is called an everlasting covenant and it focuses oh. in on the story of abraham and and his chosen family so i think we're gonna have yeah. to we're gonna to have to come back and revisit some of what you're talking about
0: in the light of our discussion about acts was was abraham's covenant everlasting yeah let's <laughs>
1: um, let's take that one on notice for next week and yeah.
0: And uh, as as a concluding thought, um, if we were to answer the question, what is God's interaction with with human beings who are fallen? What what are the terms of reference? Whatever issue you have with the start of the story, um, God's resolution to destroy is is not painted as his optimal solution. The, the broad structure of the account is that something's wrong, and that God will try and recreate it, even though it persi- it means persisting with people who get it wrong all the time Noah's sons you know sin, sin hasn't hasn't solved the problem but God's solution is he would prefer to keep trying and and in in chapter nine what we see is that God's saying look there will be injustice and we're going to have to find ways of dealing with this these are these are the sorts of ethics and morality uh, these are the terms of reference that I'd like to draw up on on absolutely what I think is the right and best way to live going forward. And then he makes a promise and says, even though the hearts of men are evil, I will never again destroy the world with a flood. And and the everlasting part of this covenant is the fact that God has resolved to be gracious. Mm.
2: Indeed, isn't it interesting that, in fact, he did not destroy the world with a flood. Uh, There was always that, I'll use a... Loaded term here, remnant, Mm -hmm. uh, that kept, uh, kept, that that God did not destroy. Uh, So many, look, much of the world was destroyed. Most of the world was destroyed. Uh, The largest portion of the world was destroyed. Um, uh, But it was never all destroyed. Never has been, never will be.
0: Is is what the passage suggests. And of course, Noah is a type of Christ who alone was righteous, but was allowed to take his family with him on the boat. So uh, um, we, there's lots of other ideas. As always, we'll, we'll now throw the discussion over to our listeners. We're very encouraged uh, that we have people who listen to this podcast. And we, of course, will have these discussions whether they're published or not. We, we do hope that they bring you some blessing. Um, although our number of people listening to the podcast is, is holding steady and, and growing, uh, the number of people responding with comments has decreased. And that's absolutely fine by us. We're not going to compel anyone to comment because uh, it gives us less things to do. Um, there's already heaps of ideas to put into episodes, but we, we do want to give precedence to any comments or ideas that are sent back through from listeners. So if you have any, please send them to the email address, sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com And we'd be really interested to know uh, any thoughts that you have, uh, any answers we'd even perhaps be even more interested in any questions uh because we find those invigorating and uh feel free to share this this podcast with any of your friends or enemies or acquaintances of any type and uh, we hope that you'll join us again next week